0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On this week's show, we're going to look at the MotoGP season for 2021 with a season preview. We've got Adam Wheeler on the show. We've got the best pit lane reporter in MotoGP on the show. And uh, David, unfortunately, that's not actually you this week. We've got
1: Simon (laughs) Crafar in as a guest on the show. Simon, great to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be on the show. And it's great. I know the listeners won't be able to see, but it's great to see your faces. I haven't seen for so long because of this COVID uh, nonsense. Well, we were in a position where we
0: were obviously trying to get Neil on the show, but he's flown out to Qatar. He's actually standing in pit lane right now for Moto2 testing. And uh, obviously, we'd love to have Neil on the show, but you're, you're a pretty good substitute for Neil, aren't you? You can do a nice bassy voice.
1: Uh, not really. Not even not even close to Neil's. Big Bird, I call him. <laughs> Big Bird.
0: You, you can definitely do a great Northern Irish accent. We saw that quite a lot last year with Gary from Dunlop.
1: <laughs> mine's bad mine's bad but yeah i've got a couple of your sayings yeah but that's about it
0: <laughs> well let's get into it straight away simon because obviously you're just after coming back from qatar to go for a few days with uh, the modal voodoo schools down in valencia and it's been flat out for you all the way yes
1: flat out um got back from qatar which was quite flat out we had a obviously a uh, quarantine time, which wasn't flat out. But from there on, um, we get really busy uh, quite late nights uh, because of, you know, the hours that it finished. Anyway, I arrived back here and um, got to see my family one evening. And then I was off the next day to Valencia, three days on track down there, which we absolute fluked. The weather was Absolutely perfect, beautiful. Twenty, I'd say nineteen to twenty-four degrees for three days with no wind. So I feel lucky, and I'm just kind of recovering from that.
2: So when when do you fly back out to uh, to to Qatar, Simon?
1: Um, So it's Sunday um, afternoon now. I fly out Tuesday um, after just after lunch sometime. So really, I've only got tomorrow here and then off. Right.
0: (laughs) Just Before we get into it, Simon, as well, because for all of us, like we always watch your videos, whether it's on MotoGP.com or whether it's the moto Voodoo videos. But if you want to just say something quickly just about the race school as well, because that's obviously something that's really good for riders of almost any level that can come in, they they can make big steps forward.
1: Yeah, well, you know, because it's kind of like tourism, um, because these people are going to do something they want to with their spare time, you know. Um, it's taken a big hit over this last winter. You can imagine, you know, um, uh, I would say 85% of people haven't been able to get a flight or don't want to risk it, so it's been very quiet. Um, Having said that, um, I feel really fortunate that uh, my company is not in those first three years. I've been doing this over 10 years, you know, 10 years with my own company and uh, three years before that. And I've paid my mortgage that I had originally. Um, and we've got a little bit of fat, you know what I mean, to, to survive this period. I feel re- genuinely sad for those people that, um, like me, in my first three years of the company, I wouldn't have survived this. And uh, so if, if you're listening and you are one of those, uh, big hug, I feel sorry for you. It's horrible. Sorry, I didn't answer your question about the school uh, just briefly. Yeah, we've got um, people uh, male and female, all ages coming from literally everywhere Uh, you know, as far as Canada, US, Aussie New Zealand, Hong Kong um, and uh, then uh, the sorry, Qatar, Dubai area then a lot of Europeans, mainly Northern European but yeah, like I said, I've built it up over ten years, and um, really proud how it's going. You know, outside the COVID area, so yeah, really good.
3: Simon, so, mean, just just a word about the schools because I think people will have the impression that they're going to go there and encounter a bunch of hardened racers, and, and they're going to be kind of outclassed. But you know, I think, uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but your kind of clients must be a real mix of, of abilities. I mean, it's not something you go to if you're just an ex ex motorcycle racer.
1: I would say there's less of those guys um, because most racers um, don't spend money on it. team. Mine is the same. <laughs> you spend it all on tires and travel or new equipment or Olin's fork internals or something, you know, some Brembo brakes, whatever it is. Um, and they don't spend money on, on uh, instruction. You know, their dads occasionally do. My – main clientele would be 30 to 65 successful at what they do. They've got some uh, cash and they go, um, I want to go learn how to go faster on a bike and we make sure they don't just go faster. I I put my heart into that during the day trying cause I want them to be happy and go, well, wow, I'm going to come back, you know, cause it's not cheap, but, um, so I really focus on getting them going. Um, then the other side is we make sure we have a great time. I, I know all the good places to eat and we have a good giggle. And they're normally, like I said, like-minded people, um, successful at they, what they do. So my other clients, there'll only be two or three other guys there and um, they're good at what they do, you know. And the the evening meal conversation is great. Like, I'll be honest. I think I enjoy that side more than riding the bike because I've been riding the bike so long that it's, um, I, oh, you know what I'm saying. I enjoy meeting these yeah. people and hearing what they do even more than being on the bike.
3: I mean, I, Sorry, I, think, you... I think for anybody who's curious about riding on a racetrack, I would thoroughly recommend it because I did it for the first time at the beginning of 2020 on the launch for the, the KTM uh, 1290 Super Duke R at Portimao, uh, And, you know, I've I learned more in that half a day riding around a circuit than you know years riding motorcycles just the the possibility to what you can actually how far you can push a machine um you know what you can do with your balance your coordination everything i mean it's a real education
1: yeah you fast track you know what um, you go from where you are to like i said fast track a big leap forward and my job is to get you to avoid the danger areas you know the last thing i want is people falling off you know when i'm going home with a big smile so yeah yep. I, I i'm conscious of soaking up your time when maybe listeners uh want to hear about the racing so i'll sh- I'll show up about that <laughs> well let
2: me let, let me just say one thing because i've uh, i mean like i've read your books I haven't been on your track days but i've uh i've read your books and i found just as a normal road rider i found it really really interesting because you broke down the process of riding uh, interesting it makes you understand understand racing but it also i mean it's stuff that i'm actually applying in my road uh in my road riding as well because you're uh, you're just thinking consciously about okay right into this corner what am i doing uh you know what am i doing with my brakes what am i doing with my throttle when yeah. am i uh you know when am i leaning when do i when do i pick the bike up all the rest of it and not to go fast uh, go through there sort of faster but just to go through there smoothly quickly and and, and, and comfortably sort of yeah. And safely yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly yeah, like it's sorting out the things i i should be worrying about and shouldn't be worrying about that was like a really big thing which i um i, I picked up from your book so yeah i mean it was um it was really really it was really well uh, analyzed and, and put together and i really enjoyed it thank you david and my aim with it was Um, to break down
1: all the areas to push that are safe to push harder and the areas to be careful of, you know, um, the last ones you squeeze a bit of time out of. Um, And it's really just, I really consciously tried to make it as simple as possible because it doesn't have to be, you know, um, I'm just getting off track here, but I love, I think it was Albert Einstein saying that. When I read it, I just—it was a light bulb. When I went, exactly. Um, what did he say? You, if you can't explain a subject, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand the subject well enough. And I so believe that. You know it, that it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. It's just simple rules. Um, that's it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things that we've always found whenever, whether it was Dylan Gray in pit lane, whether it's yourself, you know, Ian Wheeler, everyone's got different styles. But the key thing was always trying to get their information across and, uh, you know, whether it's yourself, whether it's Michael Laverty on BT, I'm sure, David, you're the same on, on Dutchers, but I don't speak any Dutch. So obviously I can't give a comment on that, but it's about trying to make it where people are able to look at something and say, cool, I know what's happening. And that's why we wanted to have you on the show this week, Simon, because this is the start of what I think is going to be one of the most exciting Grand Prix seasons any of us can remember. Last year was tremendous. It was obviously a very strange year with so many condensed races. We're in a much more traditional season now. We start off with a doubleheader in Qatar. We've got 19 races. You're just back from the test. And we saw loads of stories from pretty much every manufacturer. But what was the big thing for you that you, you took away from the Qatar
1: test? Oh, I, I can't say there is one because, um, you know, it's so close now. Um, I, I would have to say probably my big surprise with Paul was Paul Spargerow, how he took to the Honda and even more than took to it, going on his body language, uh, what he said in interviews I was really watching and listening him, to him and then seeing what he did on track I would go as far as saying that I wouldn't be surprised if he pulled off a podium in these first two races in Qatar which is quite astounding when you think he's moved manufacturer, you know and um, yeah I know people have done it before but it's impressive and Part of that ingredient is not only that he has he made friends with the bike, um, Honda are trying hard to make the bike good for all of their riders now. You know, they've been doing that for the last almost 12 months. And the final thing was his determination. Uh, all of those things together, and um, what he's achieving on track, make me say what I just did. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a podium in the first two. I know it's a big ask, but I think it's possible.
2: I noticed that as well, like speaking to him during the debriefs, what I found really interesting, it's almost like he's complete he seemed, I never seen him so focused. It's almost as if he knows this is his only chance. And as a consequence, it's not even, uh, he doesn't even worry about success or failure. Failure is simply sort of like not, not an option. It's like there's so much pressure on him, but the, pre- the pressure no longer sort of matters. How do you say it? it, it uh, you know, as a racer, is that can you find yourself in situations where you just like simply have no option to fail? Do you know what I mean? Um, I think
1: racers, unless they're rider, they're a good rider, you know, successful already in riding for a a secondary manufacturer, meaning someone who hasn't won before. There is no excuses in racing. You are always in the position you described. You you yeah. you have to succeed or someone else is going to take a job, you know, yeah. and that's racing. Um, but, yeah, I saw the same as you about Paul. To me it was what he said, how he said it. Um, he – there is – I'll put it another way. Riders sometimes line up ways out of not succeed. you know, excuses or saying, oh, we're, you know, pole is there's just no excuse there uh he's his you can see he's focused on results not the the, the shiny one-off lap not anything and then when he went out and did that long run it was impressive like as in you know in the group at least that'll fight for the podium and uh, so yeah i think i've said enough on that he he he's really impressed me and i hope the uh the, the the ball keeps rolling that direction.
3: Simon, on the subject of uh, of HRC, what's your view on Mark? Um, you know, a couple of us on the podcast have already... I mean, Hank Davis even tipped him to be world champion this year. But do you think he needs more time?
1: Uh, you know, if I said, um, I'd be guessing. Because I, I really don't know. They've done such a good job of, uh, of basically controlling the press. You know, playing the press, how getting out what they want that I genuinely, genuinely don't know what the truth is and what we're going to see, whether we're going to see Mark there in the first race. I mean, it's obviously a very bad injury. They're really worried and I really um, don't think they're going to risk him riding if it's not strong enough to fall on, even just to be careful in the first race to try and get some points because They've invested a lot of money, hired him for a lot of years. He can and most likely will win more championships. There's no point risking it, you know? So I really don't know what's going to happen. I'm totally guessing. But the, the one thing about Mark is he never um, fails to astound us, does he? So whatever he's, does he's going to come back and surprise us even if he plays it down they, they all say he's going to be careful when he's not bike fit which is true you can see that arm and shoulder is less muscly than the other one in the in the pics and videos but he's i mean you remember that time he came back uh, last he was so fast had his elbow on the ground with a freshly plated arm he's astounding and i'm sure he'll do it again but i've got no idea when that is
0: Yeah, it was one of those situations where after he came back for Hareth 2, and then obviously he's had this subsequent injury since then, but it was when he came back at Hareth 2, he went out in free practice 1, and you could see the speed of him, David. You could see that he was still more than fast enough, and that's where it all came back to where how was he declared fit enough to race in MotoGP. He was declared fit enough by the doctors, but he showed himself on track that he was fit enough because he was faster than He's faster than some of the other guys on the grid. Yeah. So you know when Mark comes back now, he've will had his you know couple of days on a, on a street bike. He's been on a supermoto bike. He's been on. Pro- he's probably been on a on a flat track bike as well that he's sort of kept quiet. But he's had time on bikes now, and at least it'll mean that he'll go to Qatar and see what happens. It's a it's a bit similar to the kind of situation we saw in Moto Two last year with Sam Lowes, whenever he went to Qatar, did the practice sessions, and then ended up sitting out the race weekend.
2: Yeah I mean you could almost use Qatar uh, certainly Qatar 1 maybe even Qatar 2 as a test so you ride uh, uh, FP1 FP2 FP3 FP4 and then don't ride during qualifying don't ride during uh, during the race um just use it as a, just use that as a test just to, you know to get up to speed to feel the bike to help set the bike up especially at Qatar 1 because you've got the you know a race at the same track and then you you catch up a little bit of the time which you've lost to the other riders um uh, the next because the other factories are not going to make huge steps between uh, qatar one and two they might sort of you know refine things a little bit but they're not really going to make a a completely different um um, you know get a completely different setup so yeah I, i can see him doing uh riding during qatar one but not racing um and then racing during qatar two however i the question is how much self-restraint can he show does he has can he resist if he goes out uh fp1 fp2 f p3 uh ends up straight through to, to to q1 uh to to q2 which is you know it's gonna do it it doesn't matter that he's been off the bike um he's easily fast enough to 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 just jump back on and uh, and be quick um can he resist the temptation to race and even if he did race it, it it would probably be fine i mean you know 99 percent of the time it's going to be fine it'll be all right the problem is if he crashes is his arm strong enough that's the that the the risk is not uh the risk is not um you know is he going to be strong enough or whatever the risk is if something goes wrong could it potentially end his career? And that, that I think is a, that's a much, much more difficult uh, balance to find as well. That's, that's the sort of thing that, that he really needs to uh, take down. You'd hope that the lessons of Jerez two, when he got on road, um, it hurt. And then the, the arm broke again and it lot and it cost him a year. You'd hope that he would be, that he would err on the side of caution, but that, uh I, there are not very many racers who are particularly good at erring on the side of caution
3: <laughs> simon you were you're probably going to be one of the first to find out you know exactly what's going on on the race weekend down in pit lane and like for many viewers and the MotoGP gp fans you've been such an important port of contact Uh, in 2000 and last 2020 and you will be this year um again just on the honda subject i was curious about uh your thoughts on alberto budge because sometimes when you grabbed him on the mic it's been you can almost feel there's a little bit of a staring contest going on there's some interesting interaction between the both of you what's it like uh trying to grab alberto and get some information out of him
1: um it's i mean alberto's intimidating guy you know He, he really is um Having said that, I feel lucky in that um, Alberto was really good to me when I first came to the paddock. Uh, my first year, uh, and he was being as difficult as, ev- as ever to <laughs> get in a, an interview with, and when I did, as difficult as ever to get anything out of, but I was walking out of Saxon Ring Circuit, so middle of 2018, my, you a know, f- few months into my first year, and he rode up on his bicycle like he does heading to his rental car um he's got a terrible injury one leg i don't know if many listeners will remember it he crashed it turn one at Le Mans on a 500 i remember watching um i wasn't in gps then i was i think i was just starting out in super bikes and he uh put his leg into the fence or air fence and it, i mean it even makes mcdoon's leg look relatively normal it's how horrendous and um Literally, it's a one bone between his ankle and just above his knee. It looks like a pig leg of a pirate, but it's a real bone. Apparently, he told me from a cow. Oh, right. They had some American company, you know, because he didn't want to eat his leg cut off. Some American uh, doctors had figured this out, used a bone from a cow. And it, it's truly terrible. So, anyway, he's on this bicycle, riding back to his uh, car. He's fit too on the bike. He rides a lot, and he stops. And he said, Simon um, basically told me he wanted me to know that um, he gives, he does, he knows he gives journalists a hard time. But whatever happens, uh, don't take it personally. I'm just doing my job. And um, and uh, you know, I said, yeah, but I'm a journalist now. And he (laughs) he put his hand on my shoulder and goes, No, you were born a racer. (laughs) <laughs> and he wrote and I, I actually that's when i shook his hand i went okay and same goes the other way thanks alberto if i ever fe- offend you you know give you a hard time please don't take it personally i'm just doing my job and we agreed to that and so we both give each other a hard time but there's a mutual respect there which i really appreciate that he came to me and said that you know started that off
0: Simon, can I just ask you a question related to that as well? Because obviously for myself, for David, for Adam, it's a very different situation. We came into the paddock as journalists and obviously you talk to a lot of people, you gain a lot of experience, you gain a lot of knowledge, but it's on a much lower scale than what you have. You've had a whole career based around racing, based around being able to understand what's happening around you. When when we ask a question, it's typically to try and, and, and give us more knowledge. You obviously have that experience of being able to say no hang on a second the reason that this is happening is directly related to something that happened a month ago or he's thinking of this that and the other and for you is that one of the big benefits that you can bring because i said earlier about like the contrasts that we've had in pit lane reporters dylan was obviously an engineer he's a mechanical engineer so he brings a lot of technical knowledge and then brought a lot of racing knowledge as well whereas you're obviously was a racing career that then went into a bit of technical and now you're able to do this
1: um, yeah, I, I was a, I did my apprenticeship as a bike mechanic from 15 on. So I know the mechanical side. I just, I think I told you earlier today, I was servicing my son's bike, my van, my Jeep, you know, doing, I, I know the mechanical side. I was an Olin's technician, um, in 2001 for Abe and, uh, Factory Aprilia, 250 riders. Um, that all helped lots, you know, along with my race career. But it um, it's nothing when it comes to commentary without learning how the commentary works, how uh, to see the show and how you can add to it or detract from it and decide how to use, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's like kind of joining, joining um, a bunch of different... Um, careers, yeah, or different how, – how would I put it? Um, this career has really taken some time to learn, you know. I, I know I had to fast track it. It's only, you know, my fourth year now, so I've had three years' experience. But, yes, I'm still learning flat out. You know, it was the same as mechanic. I was pretty crap the first two years. As You make all your mistake, then you start doing some good work, and it gets better by five years I think journalism's the same really it's it's the same time frame it it takes that long to to get better at it, so respect to you guys like it's not easy like any career you know making the mistakes, learning from it and uh improving but yeah, I'm really happy now I'm learning the journalist side to have that knowledge that I gathered from earlier years racing and working on bikes.
0: Well, let's go back to what we saw in Qatar then, because obviously we've talked about the Repsol Honda bikes. What did you take away from the LCR bikes as well? Because last year, one of the big stories for us was obviously Alex Marquez. He came in and there was an awful lot of disrespect about Alex where people forgot he was a double world champion. You know, he wasn't just Mark's brother that they said, yeah, there's the keys of a bike, just jump on it, you'll be fine. You know, he was a double world champion, won a lot of races. And people just, it seemed they were almost expecting him to utterly fail fatal. and yeah. then by the time we get halfway through the season he's on the podium you know he was making a lot of progress all the way through the year what's your take on him
1: i i'd like to start off by saying i really like alex you know all of the time i've spent interviewing him or for example the team launch reaffirmed my thoughts about him you know i did the lcr team launch and um got to chat a bit and joke with him and he he's a really nice fellow he's intelligent um and uh polite and i would like to repeat genuinely nice you know respectful to you to everyone around him um so i like him and i think he was one of the surprises of last year you know you you just touched on it podium by um you know aragon that was that was damn and a good one he was hunting down the leader wouldn't he was yeah really good so I wouldn't be surprised if he is also a surprise this year, you know, and um, he had a tough time in Qatar. Uh, Both the LCR riders did, had a lot of crashes, but um, it's a special place. Um, I gather the the front tyres were very hard there. Like, I don't think the hard got used and they were still crashing on the medium. And um, I think that caught the LCR boys out more than uh, some of the others.
2: Did you see um, the LCR uh, – because obviously Mark wasn't there – um, uh, I mean, Stefan Bradl was obviously there as a test rider. Uh, Paul was uh, adapting to the bike, so he couldn't really have time to spend, you know, learning about, you know, like testing new parts or anything. Bang did on, you see yeah. the? Yeah did Did you see the LCR uh, bikes? Was it there that there there were more tar- uh, parts being tested, more aero, more frames, that sort of thing, or or was it still very much a satellite uh, um, uh, operation? The the big
1: work. Um, hats off to him again was getting done by Bradle. Um, yeah. Amazing the amount of stuff they throw at that poor guy. Because I say that because as a racer, testing work is a shit job. It's horrible because all you want to do as a competitive rider is go faster, but you're not allowed to change the base setting of the bike to back to back parts. And um, that makes it very hard, like, because it feels like. All I got to do is tweak around that, get a bit more comfy. I'll be able to go faster, but that is not the aim. You know, you got to find a quickly find a base setting like Carl would have had to do at the test. Bradle had to do. Um, then back to back, all these things over days, and his workload has been huge. Watching what he's going through, then stuff has got filtered through. you dead right not to pole It went to the LCR guys first because they left pole alone to keep getting familiar. He was allowed to do the the racer side, you know, try and get comfy on the bike, play with it, find your parameters that you like that bike to work in, you know, whether it's, you know, weight on the front, rear, um, springs, you know what I'm saying, all the normal stuff. Um, So he got to do that. Then at the end of the test, he also got some parts. It was last day. Um, But the things I saw getting filtered through was the chassis that Bradle liked with a big carbon insert ended up by the end of the test, all of the riders trying it. And that 2021 uh, bike, we call it that because that's when it's turned up um, complete new chassis. I saw that get put in a crate and taken away by a forklift, never to be seen again, you know, at the test. So yeah, uh, that's basically what happened there. Yeah. The LCR guys, got to test stuff after Bradle and um, then finally a quick run through it with um, pole right at the end.
2: Yeah. The Do you te- have any idea which, um, which aero package they're going to be running? Cause we saw like a really, uh, we saw one package, I think with a lot of much, much bigger wings than, than the, than the two to 2020 package.
1: I only saw that one with a big wing. Um, it looked a little bit similar to the one 12 months ago. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have photos to back back, back to back cause I didn't expect it to turn up, but Got a picture of it, and I couldn't tell in the photo if it was the same or a tweaked version, um, but it only came out for – I only saw it on for one run um, no. on Bradle's bike, and then I think Tucker had it, and then it looked like to me it disappeared or I, I missed it if it came out again. So yeah. at, at least at this stage it looks like um, they're still running with what they have um but the teams allowed one upgrade isn't it so yeah i yeah, think yeah. they haven't found that upgrade yet you know or at least yeah. the riders haven't confirmed
2: it yeah exactly cause there's a, there's a test at Jerez and at Barcelona i think so they get another chance to
3: actually try it before they uh before they actually introduce a, you yeah. know make a decision on it yeah I mean, it's it's great that we have enormous parity again in, in MotoGP this year. Um, I just wondered, Simon, what was your view kind of on the world champions, really? You know, what you saw in Qatar, because, you know, last year, nobody really tipped Joanne to take the title. And, and it seems pre season, he's also being a little bit sidelined in favor of some of the, the Ducatis to talk about Mark, you know, what Franco can do on the Yamaha. Um, you know, do you think Joanne's gonna, you know, is he, is he gonna be under more pressure or are we gonna see like a, a bit of a, a better rider in 2021?
1: Um. I think Juan will get better because he's only really young, isn't he? And, and we saw how he's progressed, you know, two years ago, last year, amazing. I think he's only going to get better. He's really young, inexperienced, relatively. Uh, and I'm not sure if you saw the interview with him. Was it last night, the last night or the night before? I think it was on the last night. How he said, it's not just about here in Qatar, you know, it's um, about when we, about how we go at every race when we get back to Europe, uh, being consistent, consistently strong. Um, wow, it takes some, um, what's the word? Uh, it takes a wise head to think like that, because races just to see what's right in front of them. They want to be fastest, they're going to get disappointed, frustrated if they're not the fastest but um it seems like his team are telling him, and he knows, he's a very clever boy, that it isn't about that. It's about, not about the fastest lap time, it's about your race pace, which the Suzukis were good, um, about how well your tyres last, the Suzukis were awesome, <laughs> and uh, about how you're con- consistently strong at everywhere you go, not just guitar, don't get in a fluster, hurt yourself because you're not, fast enough in Qatar and I think he's wise enough to handle that I think Frankie's another one like that Morbidelli they've they've done it before you know those guys they've won world championships they know what it takes so I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't write off actually either of the Suzukis David we, we obviously heard Simon there saying that race pace is
0: good that they've got that consistency they've got all those things that they had last year at Suzuki but yep. have we seen that they've got a one lap pace yet they
2: we didn't see it, but then uh, the uh, both um, Juanmier and Alex Ringe were quite sort of disappointed on the final day of the test because they uh, that final day really cost them losing that final day because they'd set that day aside re- ready to prepare for the for, for the coming weekend. You know they uh, they were working on twenty twenty two in the um, uh, for a big part of the uh, test. You know trying the new engine, trying a few other p- uh, parts. Uh, ahead of that getting ready to prepare for that because obviously there's no engine upgrade so there's no need to be working on your engine for uh for 2021 and the bike were were, you know it was fast enough um so yeah do they have a do they have a single lap pace Uh, i it's impossible to say from the qatar tests they said it was something that they were that they were going to focus on but i mean it's a you know all of motorcycle racing is, is a compromise um the Suzuki is so strong because it is uh, fast at the end of the race because it, there simply isn't a bike which is better at conserving tires throughout uh, throughout the race. And um, the way you do that is to make the bike be gentle on the tires. But when you're trying to do a really, really fast lap, you don't want it to be gentle on the tires. You need to punish the tires to extract the performance out as, as quickly as possible um so you would hope that they found maybe something in setup maybe something in the in the chassis or whatever that will give them a little bit more of a of an advantage but we also saw you know put them starting from uh what is it you know third and fourth row and still fin- finishing on the podium and they only really need to make sure that they finish third or second row they don't need pole positions it's not like uh, it's not like a Yamaha. A Yamaha has to start on the front row if they're uh, if they're going to win. Um, the Suzuki can win from the second and third row, so um, they they only need to make a small step. They don't have to be the the fastest over one lap. They just have to be fast enough. That's the question, and we that won't be answered until we start racing again. David, um, really good points there. I agree with everything you said. Um,
1: one thing you mentioned was they'd save tyres for that last day in Qatar. And so you didn't see either of the Suzuki riders, especially Juan Mir, throwing tyres at it to do a lap. Um, he had something like four or five, I'd guess, left rear tyres. And um, he was still quite impressive uh, on the end of the first night, um, lap time-wise. So it looks like they've got a little bit closer, but we haven't seen what they've got. Because they saved a lot of it for the last day, like you said, because um, they were testing. They saved a heap of tyres to get through the last day, and I think we would have seen what they can do clearly then, but we don't know. But I, I think they're, um, as always, a dark horse.
2: Can the world champion be a dark horse? Well, Suzuki, you know, they always come yeah, across yeah, yeah, like
1: yeah. a da- meaning no one's expecting them to do anything uh, because the Yamahas and the Dukes are so fast. You know, yeah. or Honda's a different race. But, you know, just going on Qatar, it's the same old thing, Suzuki and horse, I think. Yeah,
0: Yeah, the one thing about Qatar is we always end up with a close race. So even if it ends up where they have to come through the pack, like we saw so often last year, they can definitely do that. But Adam, one of the big things about Suzuki, and we've obviously talked about it on the pod over the course of the last couple of, couple of months, but the massive reshuffle that we've seen at Suzuki at a management level, that's obviously going to have an impact on Suzuki. But do you think is that something that's going to have an impact longer term rather than immediate term? Because obviously a lot of the processes that are in place and were in place with Davide Brivio in charge, they're still going to be there.
3: It's hard. I mean, we've talked about it before on the podcast, Steve. I think it's hard to really say. Uh, I think the factor of Alex Rins being healthy and competitive is is another ingredient they're going to have to deal with because he was playing catch-up again to Juwan for a lot of 2020. So um, to have two very healthy and competitive riders there is is already like a competitive dynamic that maybe Davide could have handled uh, last year. Uh, he didn't have to. I think that's one scenario that Suzuki are going to have to maybe split responsibilities for for this season um yeah let's see who knows yeah i mean it's uh
2: because the team ran really well because everything was going well but when everything's going well that's not when you need management when when things are going well you know management can sort of go often spend all night uh, uh you know they can spend the whole weekend in the uh, in hospitality it doesn't make any difference when you need management is when things are going badly so we won't really find out whether that structure works or not until things start going horribly wrong but um you know everything is in place for it to work well um yeah we, we, we will find out and also i think you know we'll know much more about this maybe two years down the road rather than rather than straight away well, maybe
3: the biggest impact would be where you know will suzuki have two extra bikes on the grid um you know yeah. i'm sure david it would have been pivotal uh, in in those negotiations and, and finalizing that deal uh, I, I don't really know who from suzuki will be able to be the, the point man on, on that kind of um arrangement now
2: Yeah, that that gets a lot more complicated when you have to do it by committee, but you would sort of think that uh, Sahara-san would uh, be the person to present it to the Suzuki board that's uh you know those are much more complicated discussions but I know that that David Abrivio was very very keen to actually have the satellite teams and he put a lot of energy into trying to persuade them to have a satellite team so um yeah it, and they deserve to have a satellite team it'd be fantastic for them it would be fantastic for them it'd also be fantastic for uh, young riders coming through into the the, the championship to start riding a bike which works sort of straight out of the box sort of thing they can that they can grow into rather than you know like jumping on a jumping on a honda where that is the very deepest of deep ends sort of thing and if you swim it's great and if you don't swim then oh boy are you going to sink
0: Yeah and I think that's where long term for Suzuki it's going to be interesting because I know last year we heard plenty of rumours inside the paddock about one team it was the Grissini team that we're talking to a lot of engineers talking about in terms of we're going to be a we're going to be a satellite Suzuki team going forward it's going to be interesting to see whether or not that still holds to be the case given what's happened within the team but just before we take an ad break on, on the Paddock Pass podcast I'm going to ask you all a question and uh I want I want your views on it because it's interesting at Suzuki. You've got Juwan Mir, the world champion, you've got Alex Rins, who everyone expected this time last year would be that leader for Suzuki. And Rins, of course, in the Moto 3 class, the Moto 2 class, he was top three in the world four years in a row. He's gone fifth, fourth, third in Moto GP as well. Like he's got all those progressions that you want to see from a rider. He just hasn't quite been able to finish things off in any class up to this point but we know how how good of a rider he is he's pretty much the opposite of Mir because we saw Mir maybe not having all those flashes that you sometimes see from Rins he'll just grind out his results and then you know his podiums he won obviously a race at the end of last year he won the championship but they are two very different characters two very different riders so I just want to know who do you guys think is going to finish as the top Suzuki at the end of the year?
2: Well, I'll go first, and I'll say Juan Mir because I think Mir is a more rounded, uh, mature rider. He is—he's um, more intelligent. He's more—he's um, he, more capable of being the, uh, seeing the big picture. I think maybe Alex Rins might have more talent, but. Um, Rins is, uh, I want to say, almost like a lackadaisical. Do you know what I mean? He's almost like he's uh, – um, uh, he he, see, he never seems bothered by things. He just sort of like gets on with it and sort of wanders around and never seems to take it very, very seriously. And I think that there are sometimes that sort of um, – that, that comes back to bite him. I I, I think that he will – he drops too many results, whereas Shuan Mir never dropped results. You know, like Chuan Mir was always there. He they, he always had a he always had, even on his bad weekends, he had a decent weekend. Whereas uh, Alex Rins was, was either I mean, he was a superb a lot of the time, and then sometimes he was just sort of absent, just when it, uh, it and he couldn't put it together and he couldn't. I mean, obviously, we are trying to. Um, we're trying to sort of examine him from or or sort of see into his head down the the down as the zoom call, which is difficult enough it's difficult enough when you're actually there but um you f- didn't feel like uh he was taking it seriously enough in uh, in those sort of situations What about you
1: simon you know i'm um, i'm gonna feel bad uh picking about alex when He's better than I was. You know, he's awesome. He's he's going to be clearly one of the guys, Alex Rins, to be fighting for the championship this year. He was last year and he was injured and missed races. And so he's an awesome rider. The thing, now I'm switching to journalist, the thing that I can, um, well, that is obvious to me is that he does make mistakes where Juan Mir doesn't, meaning has the odd crash you know, while he was going to win in, in Austria, wasn't he? And he lost yep. the front there and crashed. And I was like, ah, oh. and, um, you know, it happens. But Juan doesn't do that, you know, on record so far, you know. And the other one is um, he's an amazing, talented rider, Rins. Like, amazing, talented. You touched on it, David. Um, but he often doesn't turn up until Sunday, and which yep. is quite strange. Like, And I I know that's hard for the team, uh, you know, because I've seen that in teammates and stuff or for some reason I've done it where you ride at another level on Sunday. But things like the suspension or bike setup isn't up to it then because you've been riding around a second slower or, you know, a half second slower. Uh, Then Sunday, if you push another level, I did it in Saxon Ring. Sunday, I, I, I qualified second row, but Sunday I was... Hunting down the leader, I crash because the front forks are on the bottom going in. You're pushing harder and down the road. And I think there's a little thing in there that, that's happened, that happens to Alex Rins. For some reason, he doesn't turn up till Sunday and these mistakes happen. And uh, I hope sincerely that it doesn't happen this year because I think he can fight for the championship.
3: I think, uh, like I say, Simon. I mean, if you want proof of his ability, I think the the last corner move at Silverstone will be an apt calling card for maybe the rest <laughs> of his career. I mean, it was a, a fantastic win, uh, but for me, I think it's just the mentality as well. I mean, of th- of course, we're superficially bench ra- bench racing here, but you Sorry. know, uh, the mentality. I just said we're we're like David said, we're picking him apart, you know, uh, through a Zoom call, and it's just classic sort of bench <laughs> racing. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's just a question of mentality. You know, Alex was in a winning position in Moda 2 where he could have, you know, really pulled away to take the championship there. And I think uh, Joanne just has a little bit more of the overall picture uh maybe it's a, a a bizarre inverted kind of maturity i mean alex is a little bit older and joanne's a little bit younger but he just seems to be uh mature enough to look at the overall kind of picture um but it'll be interesting for him for to have the roles reversed and think well that guy in the garage next to me he's the world champion um you know uh that gives him something to aim for straight away
0: yeah because for me it's always interesting well and we we did this whenever we spoke with jack miller for a show that's just come out as well where He's got a great sense of perspective. He understands where he came from, the challenges he had. And Rins is a little bit different because he came through the Mon Lao school. It was him, Alex Marquez, Miguel Oliveira, whenever he was a rookie in 2012, coming through. So he always had good opportunities. He always had good teams. He always had good bikes. And the reason that I asked about Rins versus Mir, it's nothing to pick apart, Rins. It's nothing to say how great Mir is. It's actually just because if you were to put a, a, a team manager hat on, Is Alex Rins expendable to Suzuki is the way I kind of look at it. And the reason for that isn't that Alex can't win a world championship. He could win a world championship. He reminds me a lot of Danny Pedrosa in that way, where he can win a lot of races. He can be a great rider. If Danny had won a championship, no one would have been surprised. If Rins goes out and wins a championship, no one's going to be surprised. But is he not so much a number two rider, but a 1.5 rider? where you've got Mir to be your considered rider, taking that championship approach, and then you've got your Pedrosa type, your Rins type, that can go out and win three or four races a year, a lot of podiums, a lot of good press, always be able to be competitive, but maybe you've got that other rider that's just
2: got that final 1% that you need. It's coming back to Mahindra, isn't it? I mean, you, you learn so much on... Uh Bad bike going through adversity. You learn much more going through adversity than you do, you know. Like if you have a good, strong career, everything works. You never really sort of figure out what you need to do when you need that little bit extra.
1: That's really good, David. Can you stop making so much sense and, uh, <laughs> right. and making us all look bad, you know?
3: <laughs> Simon, we usually have trouble showing him up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys, um, you know, most teams. Are pinning hopes on riders, right? If somebody's a uh, uh, a proven world champion, there's you know that is gonna you know win you some more. Uh, there's only one of them at the moment, really, and that is uh, Marquez. The rest, uh, we're pinning teams, team managers, uh, manufacturers are pinning hopes on them, and and Rins is one of them, you know, for Suzuki, and uh, I think they're they're sensible pinning hopes on him because he's got the ability to do it. I hope he can put it together. I mean, the classic one, the, the extreme one is is Maverick. They're pinning huge hopes on him. Like his his history is like seriously up and down, you know, when you look at races over season, but they're still pinning hopes on fixing it and, and uh, showing his true potential. And I think that's, that's rating, isn't it? Huh?
0: Yeah, it's that thing about being able to maximise it week in, week out. That's what we see the likes of Mir do. That's what we see Marquez do. That's what we saw Rossi do for a long time in his career. And like you said, Simon, there's manufacturers that are pinning hope, and there's probably more hope than expectation with some of them in terms of what they're going to be able to do going forward. And that's where it's going to be interesting when we come back after the break, because we're going to look at Yamaha. We're going to look at Ducati. We're going to look at two manufacturers that have gone down slightly different routes for who they're going to find as their top rider. So we'll be back in just a
1: moment. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations.
2: Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021.
0: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. David's actually been put on a five-minute mute just by Simon, just so that uh, he's able to get a word in edgeways. But we're <laughs> going to jump straight in. <laughs> we're going to jump straight into it, guys, because obviously Yamaha has a big talking point. And the reason for that is they've got four very exciting riders. We've got different transitions. We've got Fabio Quartararo going up to the factory seats. You've got Vinales. We've talked on him on the pod over the course of the last couple of months just about how he needs to be able to cement... The talent that we know he has but there's always that question mark about him franco morbidelli might be on the oldest bike but arguably he's the rider that most people actually expect to be that leading yamaha rider and then we've got valentino rossi on a satellite bike for the first time since he came into the class as a rookie so david for you what's the most exciting storyline
2: for yamaha uh the well i mean the, oh, gosh what's the most exciting storyline they're all uh, fascinating like i still think i'm um, i am the most interested in Fab in uh, sorry um, Franco Morbidelli's performance because I think he is at the moment he is the best Yamaha rider because he's the most rounded. Um I think there is also a little bit of the underdog, so he is uh, irritated by the fact that he's on an old bike. Uh, And that's actually giving him probably about three-tenths a lap or something just because it's giving, like, that's all motivation. He's using that all uh, as motivation. And that's really, uh, it's also impressive to be able to do that and not just to think, right, that's it, I'm off. Um, uh, Like Maverick Vinales, what I found really interesting about Maverick Vinales was the fact that I think he did something in the order of about 35 or 40 practice starts. Um, at, um, uh, at at Qatar because he was going out in the middle of the day when the track was terrible. There was no point actually trying to ride and uh, going out doing practice starts because that's the one thing which he has to perfect. But we all know that um, Maverick Vinales' problem is he doesn't have a plan B. He's fine when he's got a plan A when he hasn't got a plan B. And uh, and Valentino Rossi, what can he do in a, in a satellite squad? I mean, like, I really think it could give him a new lease of life just to, you know, not have, The pressure of a a factory team, And, and also he really has something to prove to himself. Is he going to be racing next year or not? I think this this year is going to be really really important for him. Simon, I just want
0: to ask you a question about Franco in particular because when you're when you're sitting on the bike, when you're in a race, obviously it's an incredible amount of attention, concentration, focus that you need. But I found it really interesting watching Valencia last year, whenever it was Franco against Jack and i was actually watching the race world superbikes were testing in Jerez, and i was watching the race with manuel pachetti who used to run in franco in the italian championship and after about half distance pachetti said to me franco's got this in the bag there's no need to watch anymore because he saw that Franco had changed some of his lines. I think it was into the into the slow hairpin in the middle of the track. What's that? Turn eight, turn nine, mm-hmm. that kind of area. And he saw that Franco was trying to basically lure Jack in. He was breaking early, showing Jack that you can attack here, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and then on the last lap or the second last lap, Franco he suddenly showed up. how Lady could break. And it's that kind of awareness that you know it it it's it's difficult for us to understand how a rider can make those kind of decisions during the course of a, a battle like that. But Franco was able to do that quite a lot last year. His his adaptation to to that bike, to that team, it really impressed everyone last year. Uh,
1: it, it deserved to impress everyone. Franco um, is one of those awesome, solid riders that realizes his potential, you know, like Mir, they're, they're world champions before they got to MotoGP. And, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan and I have no doubt that he's going to impress us all again this year, you know, the further into the year we go, uh, there'll be people fall by the wayside, you know, or make mistakes, you know, and I'll be not, not surprised at all if Franco doesn't and does what he does, did last year, you know, um, you know what, I actually spoke to a couple of writers that, uh, from other manufacturers, I won't name names, but um, they see Franco as a real threat and hope the old bike holds them back. Because if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't, they know uh, they're in trouble. You know, so that to hear that from another rider, high level, is uh, yeah, big praise on Franco.
3: For me, I think one of the storylines is uh, you know, will Fabio be able to again? gain a degree of maturity he's in the factory team now uh i think yamaha are kind of maybe looking at him as a little bit as the future uh for the direction on the m1 um you know maverick minales is uh you know a very competitive teammate next to me i mean quaterra is, i think the second youngest rider on the grid so it's uh you know what how can he produce a more all-rounded game uh this season but then also valentino's uh you know, his, his situation as well. I think he's going to keep fans guessing again for a first third of the season of his future. Uh, like we said before, you know, he started his career in the Premier Class in a satellite team. Maybe he could be finishing it in a satellite team. Um, and as we're talking for the Qatar preview show, uh, let's not forget that, you know, he's a previous winner in Qatar. I mean, it was in 2015, the last one, but, you know, he showed in, in the test as well that he's no slouch around there. So, you know, inter- interesting to see what kind of competitiveness he'll have in that situation.
1: Yeah, um, I'll start off with uh, Valentino. Uh, um, I spoke to Ramon Focada uh, to do the MSMA interviews I do with the crew chiefs, you know, uh, for the website, and um, got talking to him about the atmosphere in the team. I, I just wanted to know, you know. I said, it must be good, you know. I heard David Munoz. Is it Munoz? Am I saying it yes, right? Yes, Munoz. Yeah, Munoz. yeah. Um, David Munoz. Um used to work for him. He was a young guy at the time. Their relationship's really good. You know, there's respect there. Then the riders are good buddies. You know, there's no <laughs> petition down the middle of the garage. Um, it has to be a really good atmosphere in there. And and Foucata's hugely experienced, especially with the Yamaha, maybe the most experienced guy. Um, so I think Valentino has all the right ingredients to have the year he wants, you know. I hope the bike is that step forward, and uh, and he shows it. Because if he doesn't this year, I think it's time to give it to the young fella, you know. Because um, the Moto Three boys, you know, sorry, Moto Two boys, everyone knows what a huge fan uh, I am of the the next guy's getting the opportunity, you know. Because one more year won't change Valley's life, but it will change a Moto Two rider's life. You know, give him the opportunity to shine. So it's one or the other. Hope he either has a good year or hands, uh, hands over the reins. If I move over to um, what uh, um, I mean, the guy is probably talent wise uh, enough to terrify anyone in that GP field. He's stunning fast, isn't he? When he's happy. Um, the last year there was ups and downs and toys getting thrown out of the pram. And, uh, I hope it sounds like he recognized that, got some help, you know, meaning, uh, spoke to a psychologist to make himself a little bit more stable in that, in those situations. Um, I understand that's what he did. Um, you know, he hasn't fought for a world championship. In the smaller classes. He doesn't have that experience. He definitely has the ability to. I hope Yamaha have improved where they won't be so inconsistent this year and he can show his potential because he's another one, like I mentioned earlier in the, you know, before the ad, that manufacturers are pinning their hopes on riders to realize their potential, giving them all they can. And so far, the last rider in Yamaha we haven't spoken about, Maverick, hasn't realised his potential because his is amazing as well. They're two of the, by far, the fastest boys in the class, but, um, you know, Maverick really hasn't realised his potential because it is super high. I mean, he's a stunning rider. I love watching him. Uh, Beautiful, you know, how fast smooth he is. But he seriously needs to do something this year, show that he doesn't have those inconsistencies.
2: Uh, a question for you, Simon. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here because do you think that Valentino Rossi will know when it's time to retire? And do you think he'll be able to take that decision or will he hang on? Because me, in my mind, I have Loris Caporossi, who was a stunning rider at the peak of his career uh but really hung on for maybe one or two seasons too long and was and, you know by the end of it he was simply not not fast enough. Do you think that Valentino will uh know when it's time to go and will accept that it's time to go?
1: I believe he will. I might be wrong, but I believe if it isn't um what he wants to do this year that he'll that he'll give it give it up And I will respect him more if he does that if it isn't the right results, you know. But riders uh, really struggle to say no. If there's somebody standing there going, Do you want to ride this? <laughs> 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 their whole life, their whole life has been saying, Yeah, that's the best deal. Yeah, I'll do it, you know. So super difficult for them to say no. But I think that Valentino is clever enough to say, to pull the pin at the end of this year if the results and up to his standard, you know what, what he wanted to achieve.
0: Yeah, we've talked about it a lot in the pod over the course of the winter, where you know Valentino is still one of the fifteen best riders in the world. It's not like he's taken up a seat and he's just some pensioner sitting on a motorbike, running his way around. It's not like ago's was come incredible. back at seventy-five to ride, you know. And I think that for me, it's one of those things where. You know, Rossi, he's not the Rossi that we remember whenever, you know, I first got into bike racing when you were looking at 125s and 250s and there was this kid that even for me watching it, he captivated me. And then suddenly whenever he's on a 500 in a MotoGP bike and he was the best ever, but there's nothing wrong with someone else coming along and being better than him. He's in his 40s and he's still able to perform well. If Rossi goes out and finishes on the podium, if he wins a race, it's not going to be that big a shock because he had chances to do that last year. He had chances to do it the year before. So if he can do it, it it's great. And any any of us have been at a race when Rossi's won, the atmosphere has been something special because you're looking at Tiger Woods winning the Masters last year. You're looking at the best ever being able to perform and, and win
1: races. I couldn't agree more. I want to jump back in. Sorry, guys, if I'm holding you up. But I couldn't agree more. It is truly astounding that someone, at his age and experience, um, can fight with the very best in the world. Because the he's like a Federer, you know, isn't he? You know, because I can't understand it. I I could not be that fast when I got older you know it's it's, yeah to me huge respect and it's quite unbelievable that he's as fast as he is it really is yeah I have have to say Simon he's
0: just like Federer because there's a Spanish lad that's better than him
1: (laughs) 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 oh no yeah well anyway I I hope I got across because it is truly amazing how you know, because it's easier to sit back and watch and go, um, you know, he's getting too old, time to give it up. But to know how fast, you know, this field is, there's nobody slow in there. Incredible, the best of the best, you know. And he's still competitive, truly amazing. But I want to see um, a young Moto3 guy. Uh, while I have the opportunity, I've got to squeeze in. It's not fair. I know you guys will be waiting. But there's guys like off the top of my head, right now, Kinet, um, uh Gardner, uh, you know, uh, sorry, young Buzeki, he's going to be another awesome superstar in this class. I want to see, and there's about three more right behind them. You know, if they have a good year, they're going to deserve to get on one, maybe four of them. Um, so that's seven, I think, are ready if they have a good year to move up to GP. It'd be so sad if they don't get a chance. So I'd like to finish on that, on that note. Fire away, guys.
0: Yeah, because I think it is one of those things where you want to see that next group come through. Yes. And now we've got great bikes up and down the grid it's not like it was like even actually saying if you look back to when you were racing in the 500 class and you had the Honda Twins you had the Roberts but you had lots of different bikes but there was a big spread in the field and it didn't matter how good you were if you were on the wrong bike you weren't going to perform well now we've got tons of good bikes and I think that brings us nicely into the next uh, manufacturer we're going to talk about because Ducati has obviously brought through a lot of rookies they've got a great bike they've set themselves up where all their teams have a chance. To succeed, and they've also set it up where they just said, "You know what? We've got Andrea Dovizioso. He's won a lot of races for us. He's been a title contender, but he hasn't gotten across the line. Let's shake things up completely, and let's put Jack Miller in. Let's put Pecco Bagnaya in. You put Johann Zarco in at Pramac. Suddenly, you know Ducati's changed everything. But you're not going to be surprised if you know they go out and, and and pick up a win in Qatar and have a title contention again.
1: Yes. Um sorry what what am i meant to answer I, i'm just curious what <laughs> hey just, I, I, who, who,
0: well i'll tell you i'll tell you what. Like, who do you see as being that top rider at ducati who do you think can be the rider that replaces davi can win that championship
1: oh um right now it has to be jack doesn't it you know he watching his swagger his <laughs> uh, guitar i gotta say i love jack um and i'm not biased in that um that I want him to be the one. I just think that if he is, it's gonna be so good for MotoGP because he's such a character, you know? I think Banyaya is gonna get there. He's he's stunning fast, but he's way more reserved. He won't shake MotoGP up like Jack will, you know. Um, Jack's hilarious. It, I, I wish I could tell you some of the stuff that he played on us uh, for the interviews. <laughs> just brilliant. He's a comedian. Anyway, um, because he's so good at being himself, and I just hope that he is the man, you know, this year uh, for Ducati and does achieve what, he, what they hope he can. Um, yeah, then it's Banyaya. Uh, he's showed what he could do a couple of times last year. It didn't quite happen, but, wow, Hereth first, then Mazzano, unbelievable fast if he can, uh, you know you've seen it in Motor 2 how he's an experienced guy, knows how to fight for a championship, I think he's going to get there Jack probably only has a small window before uh, Bagnia is going to, you know be a real problem and Jack needs to take advantage of it because Bagnia is Italian as well, you know <laughs> it it's better, doesn't it so, uh, then Zarco I wouldn't be surprised at all if he has the a few amazing results this year. I can't see him fighting for the championship, but I can see him standing on the podium a few times and and uh, doing Pramak uh, Proud. Uh, then, young Martin, the rookie. I'm sure we'll get to the rookies later, but uh, great choice, you know. He, Him and um, Bastianini. I mean, they've got the top three out of Moto2 from last year finishes, haven't they? So, you know, is that right? No, yep. man, not Martin. Uh, he would have been if he hadn't got the COVID. Yeah. He'd have been there. So, yeah.
3: Yeah. You've got some stunning boys on their bikes. Simon, do you reckon that um, Ducati have more versatility now? I mean, maybe do you think at the end or during last year, there was some frustration with, you know, Dobby and, and Danilo and trying to make that, that Michelin work, trying to get more corner entry, you know, speed and consistency there. I mean, now they have a real kind of spread and, and like you say, a, a range of characters on, on the motorcycles. Maybe they just wanted more, a bit more verve and a bit more, I don't know, spunk in, in, in their riding rider collective.
1: Well, Dovi and Petrucci complained of the very similar things, maybe didn't put it the same way, but listening to them, they yeah complained of that rear tyre and how it changed the bike, how they rode it. And, you know, you know they had a real problem last year with that rear tyre. It, it it didn't work. They had a, a shocker, really, the factory team. And here was the Primac boys not having the same problem. You know how... Um it's you know sometimes experience maybe set in your way so I came across that with me I went faster and faster over the years I rode Dunlop then when I got back on the Mitchell I couldn't ride them I was slow but that was my style and not being able to change it you know so I liken it to Dovi and Petrucci damn good then the rear tyre changes couldn't get the results, you know, occasionally. Obviously, Dobby won one, and, but um, then Ducati must be looking at Pramac going, these young fellas aren't even having the same problem, you know. They've learned to ride around that. Let's run with them, and I totally understand their decision. You know,
2: that's how I see it. The thing which really impressed me and especially in the uh, in the interview which we did with uh, both uh, Jack and Peko, um, uh, and has just come out that would, that was really interesting is Jack has made especially a step I think in his maturity in his in, in his mental approach he was he's much more relaxed. He's much less um, sort of flustered by things which are going on around him. He's much less worried about what's going on around him. He had, like you said, Simon, the swagger. Yeah, you could, I mean, that swagger really, really came across. And, you know, motorcycle racing, so much of it is confidence. And there was, like, he's never been short of confidence. But now the confidence is real. There, there there's a difference. I remember going to World Superbikes one year, um, at Assen when uh, Carlos Checker was uh, was the year that Checker won the championship. And just the way that Checker held himself, you were thinking, yeah, he's gonna be champion, because he did there was no hesitation, there was no doubt in his mind. There was nothing. It was just obvious, like, okay, yeah, he he was there, I've got this. And it's the same with it's the same with Jack Miller. Jack Miller is just exudes all right, I've got this. Don't worry about it. I've got it all under control. And yeah, of course there's going to be ups and downs and and, and all the rest of it, but he really really seems like full of of confidence and that's what makes uh, I'm um, like you say in, in terms of a character. I mean, he is fantastic. He is hilarious. Um uh and it's going to be really interesting. He's going to be good for the sport. Also, because he's, in it, you know, he, he speaks English, he can make English jokes. There's lots of English-speaking market. That it's more of a, glo- you know, that's better as a global proposition than someone who speaks um, whose English is, isn't so good. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite, um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do this year, and I think he's going to be a serious, serious factor. The thing that I'm
1: waiting to see is um, how you touched on it there, how Jukeri and Jack cope with that bad yeah. event you know where the bike's not working and it's not going um how jack uh, you know how he holds it together how they fight their way out of that hole and how ducati support him you know that that's going to be the the telling thing i think but um yeah speed wise and swagger and confidence uh, ability it's all there
2: yeah, I mean that was what we spoke to him about, uh, about during the interview. Was he, he was like saying, yeah, there were those because he had those difficult periods in his life. For example, I don't know if you remember watching him on the FTR Honda or in Moto Three. He was astonishing on that bike because you know the bike was had no horsepower, but it had the it had the chassis for him to be able to sort of you know, to be able to turn the bike. So he had to work that much harder to get something out of it. Well, the
3: KTM. And I think that
2: that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, and it's the it's the it's the, the, the same difficulty. So he's got his, he has learned to ride through difficulty, and I think that's really really important for uh, for the for the developer for the development of a rider.
0: Yeah, and I think David, just to move on from that, obviously you can listen to episode one ninety two. That's where we sat down with Jack and Paco. But we'll move on to talk about KTM and in actually another plug to a previous episode. In episode 190, we spoke with Brad Binder about his thoughts on the coming season. And KTM is an interesting one because Qatar was a tough test for them, David. They didn't really get to to show an
2: awful lot. Well, yeah, but again, I mean, the most interesting thing about KTM is the fact that they're terrible at Qatar, um, uh, to put it sort of bluntly. It's always been a track that was really, really bad for them. I remember the first race, uh, uh, their first race there, there was something like three seconds a lap off the pace. They were a long, long way off the pace. So it's really difficult to say anything about 2021 from this test. What you can say is that um, uh, 2020, well, you can say that they're going to have a tough opening weekend. We know that. But you can't say, you know, um, uh, you can't say that they're going to be uh, that they've lost all of that big step that they made last year. Um, that development, I think, is is going to be interesting to watch. And Milia, talking to Miguel Oliveira, Miguel Oliveira seemed to come in as the leader of the uh, of the team. He very much uh, exuded again that confidence, like, okay, right, I'm in the factory team. I've got the responsibility. I know what I'm doing this is my year and and I'm going to make for it. And he didn't seem to be panicked by the poor results.
0: Simon, just to ask you about, Miguel, obviously for KTM, there's the development freeze. KTM, though, have been able to develop their engine a little bit for this year, but uh, having the same basic package one year to the next makes a big difference. But for Oliveira, this is a real test this year because he did a lot of shit talking last year. You know, he was calling out Paul, Paul an awful lot. He was making it where he should be that star rider for KTM. And now he has to put up or shut up and he really needs to to perform. And, and we know what he can do. He won twice last year. He's always been fast, whether it was in Moto3, Moto2 or in Moto GP. But you don't really leave yourself an awful lot of margin for error whenever you put that pressure on yourself.
1: Um, yeah, first of all, Miguel, some of the stuff he says on, you know, on the mic, on TV and interviews, yeah, it makes you, wow, you know, take a step back. Whoa, he's uh, obviously not happy and makes you wonder what sort of guy he is to, to do that. Um, when I'm lucky enough to get to talk to him one-on-one, you know, I did the last time at the very end of the test, I believe, um, and he was walking away from the interview set nobody else around, he stopped and we chatted, really nice fella, like when you talk to him one on one like that, um, I wanted to get across to the listeners, um, yeah super nice, intelligent um, and I agree with what uh, David is saying and uh, also what you're saying Steve is his confidence I felt it as well It, it was just, just like Jack, he stepped up to the factory team um, and he's going to do the job, he had a terrible year the first year, um but the KTM was terrible, wasn't it? You know, the only guy that could ride it was Paul. And um and he'd been there right from the beginning. And so that I think really knocked Oliveira around. And then last year the bike came good, like impressive good, and so did you know Miguel. So and I think now his third year, he's ready, he's more ready than Brad. Brad's had one year at it. Um and uh, uh yeah, he's he's the Jack, isn't he? He's one of Jack's ahead of Peko. It's exactly the same in KTM and um talking about KTM at Qatar, they underperformed, I think they expected to be better, and me looking in, I expected them to be better. And uh, David has been watching closely for years. And as you said, they struggle at Qatar. Uh, The team manager told me when I asked him off camera, you know, are you surprised what's going on? He goes, yeah, but we've never been winter season champions, you know, winter test champions before, you know, typically. And they won races last year. Uh, He also said that the riders... have been put under, Petrucci confirmed this in interviews I saw, big pressure to run through hardware testing stuff. And they could not adjust their bike, like I was explaining earlier, to suit them, you know, which riders want to do as they go fast, they want to play little tweaks here and play with the bike. The team, sorry, the manufacturer needed them to keep those settings the same so they could back to back hardware, you know, and they didn't get to play till right at the end. So I think the amount of testing and um, all of these things has held them back, I think. And the last piece of the puzzle I mentioned on After the Flag is they were pretty average at the first Misano and a lot of the first races when we had back to back ones. They got on the podium second with you know. I think that they're good at fighting back, making progress. And I think the other reason why they make step forward is because they have so little data comparing other manufacturers because they're such a young manufacturer in MotoGP.
3: Yeah, if there's anybody, I think with a cloak across the uh, the garage box, then it's KTM. I mean, just some. You said Simon, there was a there was a big workload there. They had to get through in those five days uh, in in Doha or in Losail. So um, you know, I think that is a factor. That's why we didn't see them so high up the time sheets. Um, and that makes them, you know, to if there is a dark horse, I think you know for Qatar, perhaps not, but they're certainly going to be competitive. And if you're talking about competitiveness, then you know if you're only as good as your last race, then me and Miguel Oliveira is the best rider in (laughs) MotoGP at the moment. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, he he's impressive. Like, yeah, I think Brad needs one more year to be sort of confidence and knowledge like uh, like Miguel is now.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting with you know we look at. The, and you said it there about the, the test program teams have. KTM have invested heavily in their test program. Obviously, Danny Pedrosa, Mick Callio. they've actually had a host of other riders on the bike. They had Burger on the bike at one stage. I think even Michael Laverty was doing some work at one point. and And lots of different riders, just to get as much information as possible. They've invested heavily in that. Suzuki invested very heavily in it. Yamaha is starting to do that as well. We, we talked about Stefan Bradl too. And it kind of brings us nicely to the manufacturer that surprised everyone in Qatar, and that was Aprilia, because Aprilia obviously invested in Bradley Smith to be their test rider in the past, but there's question marks about what's going to happen with Aprilia going forward. They've now confirmed that Dovi's going to test the bike after the Qatar round. Yay! So they're <laughs> I think that was everyone's reaction whenever they saw that press release coming in. But it's one of those things where we're seeing them put in that investment. But Aprilia, you know, we talked about this after the Qatar too, show we were we were talking about how it seems that they've made progress but Simon you were there how much of that progress was real and how much of it came down to the fact that Aleish is probably the best rider in the world in Los at different times
1: oh that's a really good question because he didn't do his race run either you know he had a fall just before it didn't do it and that to me is worrying um because I'll just dip back and explain why um they was stunning at guitar, like so fast, every session, every day, uh, truly amazing. I had engineers, um, you know, chatting casually from different teams tell me they were super impressed with what Aprilia had turned up with, how much new hardware they had on their bike, totally carbon fiber swing arm and different chassis and different engine, different heads on it, um, more power right through the range, of the start device on the front, different wings, you know, for aero, it's a whole new bike, different tailpiece, different exhaust, truly awesome. And the thing worked, which was more surprising because often you put all these things on and they, they don't, you know, you've got to throw half of them away. And Aleish was super impressive. Um, His, you know, medium length runs and fast laps, stunning. His starts, I would say, second only to Jack Miller, from what I saw, meaning he was fast, him and Jack were fast right from the the first practices. And that was the first time both those manufacturers uh, had been using them, you know what I'm saying, in front of us all. And uh, the others were, the Suzuki's were consistent, but the others were up and down. Um, then Aleish failed to do that long run. So I don't have all the not all the uh, info that I would like before saying where they're at. Sorry, you, you didn't want to yeah, say something?
0: It, it's one of those things, isn't it, Simon? Because we see this a lot in testing. And, and I've talked to Jonathan Ray and Para Reba about this a lot, where Reba says, until you've done a race run, you haven't done a race run. It doesn't matter if you put 20 laps on a tyre. It wasn't 20 consecutive laps. It's not reflective of yeah. what we can expect over the course of the race this weekend or, or whatever it is. And Aprilia looks great. And on paper, when you look at you know the times that were coming in, it looks amazing. But until they actually hook that up for the full race distance of Qatar, there is that question mark. They could turn up in Qatar and surprise us all. But on the basis of the history that we've seen with that manufacturer, it would still be a surprise, even though their pace was fast in the test.
1: Yeah. Um, I, with all my heart, want the la- the final manufacturer in this championship to step up, you know. And it's not because I ride a, a Prillian now. You know, they help me out with my track day thing. It's because I want every bike in there with a chance to, standing on the podium and I want every rider in there with a chance to stand you know they've all got a bike competitive and Aprilia this is the first time I've seen it fast awesome handling everything together I'm going wow the thing that worries me every year is uh, when you said them step up they they don't step up rider wise m- meaning buying the guys that can do it um or taking a gamble on somebody they tried to take a gamble on somebody from Moto3 uh, for this year. And that uh, that disappoints me, if I'm honest. And to see them step up and hire Dovi is brilliant. That's the first time I've seen a move that I hoped, you know, it's not my decisions. They They, they know more than I do about what's good for their company, but man, if you've got a bike that looks right now that it's very close to the whole package, you need the rider too. And has is fast, you know, super good. But he's got one podium in nine years, you know. And so all of that's hanging up in the air for Qatar, what he's going to do. And then the other rider's got an injured shoulder and he's come from super bikes. and, And I'm like, You know the poor guy needs more time. He needs to be in the second team, becoming through. But he's in the factory team where someone serious should be standing. You know that's how I feel. It's my gut feeling.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting with Savadori because obviously I know him fairly well from his time in the World Superbike paddock, and he was always viewed as being a good rider. But in terms of on the superbike grid, he was that second, third tier. Sometimes you'd see him do something really special in the wet. He was really good. He's got a lot of talent but it's very difficult to jump in his his you know fourth grand prix start is in qatar you know all these other guys have come up with you know four years of moto 3 action a year two years three years of moto 2 and yeah. suddenly they get the opportunity to be on the grid and that's where there's the good comparison to the other rookies Because obviously we've got Luca Marini, lots of Moto2 experience and lots of pressure that he's had to deal with the whole way through his career. You look at Jorge Martin, he's a world champion. He could easily have won a Moto2 championship as well. Obviously a bit unlucky last year. You know, He was able to win a lot of races. And then you look at Enea Bastianini, the reigning Moto2 world champion. These are the kind of guys that you want to have on your bike. And these are the kind of guys that everyone wants to see on the Grand Prix on the Grand Prix grid, and that's not a slide on Lorenzo because, like I said, there there are some moments when he shows what he can do. But you're up against guys that do it week in, week out for years, and those rookies. It's an exciting class of rookies, David.
2: Yeah, it's definitely an exciting class of rookies. I think one more point about Lorenzo Savoldori is. Um, um, we saw this with Stefan Bradle. We saw it with Bradley Smith. Uh, Savadori hasn't really been racing at, at, at a high level for uh, for a while. He's been focusing on testing and making that transition from being a test rider to a to a racer is is really hard because your your mindset and your your approach has to has to change a lot and it takes a lot. I mean, we really saw it with Stefan Bradle, where at the start of the season he was you know just sort of running around uh, sort of towards the rear end of the field, and by the end of it. He was looking genuinely, really, really fast, really impressive. Um, so yeah, it, it takes a while, and all these other rookies—they're coming up uh, from Moto Two. They were, you know, competing at the very highest level earlier this year, um, or sorry, last year, last season. Um, uh, and, you know, so that, that competitiveness, that, the that racer mentality is already ingrained. And, I mean, if I have to look at the, the three Ducati rookies, um, I mean, personally, I think, uh, Bastianini is probably the most talented. I think, uh, Jorge Martin is, is a fantastic racer. Um, I think Luca Marini is more of a slow burner and I, I think he's the most intelligent of the bunch. Um and it's going to be see interesting to see how he develops um but yeah i mean it it's a really really exciting group and uh, and i'm really i mean i'm most impressed i think by bastianini i didn't expect him to be because bastianini was a bit sort of hot and cold sometimes uh certainly in moto three uh he got better in moto two and it looks like uh, again that maturity he's made that step that mental step which is the difference between sort of you know being fast sometimes and being fast always.
0: Simon, who do you see as being the top rookie when we get to the end of the year? Ooh, I'm only asking you because we've actually already asked each other this on the show previously, okay. so I'm putting I mean, you on the spot. It,
1: to me, it's a battle between. Uh, it's going to be a battle between Martin and uh, Bastianini. I think. Um, I think Martin. I'll go with. Um, I'll explain why. All three of these guys. David again explained it perfectly. <laughs> perfectly. Um, uh, they're just, sounded. they're quite different guys. <laughs> you're putting me out of a job, David. <laughs> no, you're good at it, mate. Hey, um, they're three different guys totally, and they've all got the ability to get there. I think they're going to take different speeds. Um, I think that Bastianini is probably the biggest natural talent, you know, and pinning big hopes for him to go all the way uh, to be a superstar, you know. Uh, Jorge is close behind on the ability, but his determination a- aggression determination he's so hungry you know he's battled uh, he comes from not a wealthy family from Madrid and he he fights for it and he's he's been doing it for years and wow he, he I put money on him being but just because of this attitude you know um, and it's got to be close between him and bastianini uh, Martin uh, sorry um, Marini. Uh, David, again, explained it perfectly. He's more, I would explain, as a thinker. Uh, he wants to know how it works and ch- try that and that. Okay, that works. It's, you know, where Martin doesn't actually know about bike settings. I've, I've seen what he does. He just gets on and holds it on, you know, and then complains about whatever it is in the team, figure it out, where Marini will be going through the computer and figuring out, this, doing this here. You know what I mean? He's more methodical. But I think it's just, different ways to get to the same uh same result and they'll get there at different times different speeds you know
0: yeah it's always interesting whenever you look at the comparison between riders and how they deal with those kind of problems because i remember talking to michael vandermark about this and vandermark is one of those riders that he's in the garage and then he's gone and the team don't see him it's up to the crew chief you sort that out and then we'll come back we'll see if it's fixed for him it's about trying to make sure that he's in the right mental state to go ride the bike if the crew chief has done his job, the bike's better. If the crew chief hasn't done his job, the bike isn't better. And <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of approach he takes. And that, that's probably going to be something that changes for him over time. And Martin could be one of those riders as well, that he's got a lot of natural talent. That's been clear for a long time. And now it's when you get into MotoGP, it's about trying to just apply it a little bit differently. And that's what's going to be interesting to see from him.
3: Uh, can I just make a point, you know, aside from the rookies, I'd like to flip it on the other side a little bit and say there's maybe four or five riders in MotoGP this year that will be maybe looking over their shoulders a little bit, like, Simon's, <laughs> like Simon said, there's That's there's good. there's guys coming in, you know, from Moto2, so I think, you know, without wanting to be too harsh, I think you have riders like Taka Nakagami, maybe Joe Zarko, maybe the two guys at Tech3, uh, Alesh himself. You know, there's guys there. I think that maybe have a little bit more heat to, to keep those saddles because there is an influx. Uh, you know, there's more pressure. It seems. Yeah, that that's a huge problem. It's a
2: huge problem for riders in Moto 3 or Moto 2, rather, because the um, there are a lot of very very talented, very very fast, and also very very young riders in MotoGP, and there's just not the room. I mean, we really need the grid to expand to 24 bikes. Just to find some bikes for you know for some of these riders like like Wayne Gardner Gardner like like Biceki, uh like Canet uh, to, to actually get onto because I mean who's going to leave the class? The, there are fewer and fewer riders that you would actually want to kick out of the class.
3: If Wayne Gardner. <laughs> Yeah, Wayne Gardner makes a comeback. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah,
2: <laughs> Remy.
0: Ray, Wayne <laughs> yeah, might yeah. well be a big step towards that. But <laughs> it, it is the case, though, because there is a lot of young riders coming through, and it is going to be interesting to see what happens if we can add an extra seat on the grid. Adam mentioned the KTM riders there. Petrucci and, and Iker are two riders that are going to be under a lot of pressure. There's always the opportunity for an open seat at somewhere like Aprilia. Ducati can't keep having all these riders. So if one of those riders underperforms, suddenly a really plum seat opens up and that's the kind of opportunities that do come the way if you if you don't quite perform it and it's tough to perform right now it's such a close field where you know one second is the difference between pole and last and and you know it's the difference between winning and being nowhere and uh, these riders they're under so much pressure and that's where whenever we get into the course of a 19 race season it's who deals with that pressure best and seeing as this is the 2021 moto gp season preview i'm gonna to have to put you all on the spot Who's going to win the world championship? Simon Crawford is already shaking
1: his hand, is shaking his head. Clearly Simon, that means you want to go first with this, yeah? Um, no, I wonder, <laughs> I'm going, no, not that question, because yeah. it's just too hard. There is, I, what I wanted to say was about the class, is more than one team member said to me at Qatar, There's, this year is going to be so tough. You're going to get fantastic riders in 10th and 15th, you know, on the grid, you know, like, so, and yes, um, to go back and another question, there is going to be, you know, two, three, even four riders looking over their shoulder this year. But I think that's correct, because I think there's going to be that next level of sorry, sorry but quality that will come from Moto2 to replace them, you know, and uh, it's how it is. Uh, one more thing about that is um, that I like to say is you s- you've seen how much damage these uh, young guys from Moto2 have done. If Fabio's the best example, you know, turned up an absolute sensation. I guarantee there's another Fabio and another, uh, you know what I'm saying, another t- just behind him in motor two, stuck there right now, so I'm not sad about it. About championship before I pass that baton on. Guys, I really don't know. The it's because it's too big a thing between too many guys, but I, I like I, I think there's more chance of it being one of the guys who knows how to win a world championship. Um, you know, fighting for it again. So, you know, it I think Franco's gonna be fighting for it. Juan, mere again. Guys, I, I genuinely don't know. And that's the great thing about MotoGP right now because I don't know. Well, Simon's
0: obviously still too scared, David, to put his flag on the mask. But uh, what about you?
2: <laughs> not scared, I mean, just don't know. He's it, it, <laughs> absolutely right. He is absolutely right. It, it really is close and it's going to come down to experience and being able to put together a, a, a championship over an entire season. Um, uh, like I said on the separate, a separate uh, prediction pod that we did, uh, I think it's going to be Mark Marquez, but I think it'll be Mark Marquez in the final race of the year at Valencia. Um, I think it's going to come down that close. Um, I think uh, uh, Joan Mir is going to be there. He's going to be the rider to beat uh, again. I don't think he's going to win 10 races. I think he might win two races, but he'll still uh, sort of enter. Uh, Valencia with enough of a margin to uh, be in the race. I'm really interested in seeing what Jack Miller can do. I think Jack Miller is going to be there. I think Franco Morbidelli is going to be there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if Paul Espargaro is there as well. Um, just, just going on, you know, on his adaptation so far.
1: Again, but, um, I agree
2: to- full heartedly <laughs> with David. So just listen to David's
1: report. No, not I'm sorry, guys,
3: but that's an absolute cop out because once again, uh, David's taken Steve English' tactic of naming every other rider on the grid. No, uh, i Just listing the people that, that
2: Mark market once- is going to beat. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, but I mean, it, honestly, there's, there's, I think it, I think Marcus is going to win, but I think it's going to be at the last moment, and the, and it, it's going to be we're going to head into Valencia, and it's not going to be obvious who's going to be who's going to be champion. I think it's going to be that there's going to we're going to head into Valencia, and there's going to be three or four guys who are in with a mathematical, a realistic mathematical chance of winning the championship. I like that. But David, is Mark going to start the first race? uh I hope he doesn't I hope he starts the second race because I think it would be um or well p- no sorry let me rephrase that I hope he listens to the doctors I hope he listens to his doctors and the doc- and he does what his doctors said um uh, beyond that I don't know I I, I really don't know but um I mean, he's definitely going to race in Portimao, hundred percent. i would put money on him racing in Portimao. I think there's a about a ninety five percent of him uh, a chance of him racing in Qatar 2. Qatar one, I don't know. It really depends on what the on what the doctors say and whether he's sensible. I would put money on him on him riding in um, at Qatar one, but you know, maybe just sort of getting a bit of a bit of testing, a bit of a, a bit of seat time. I think my my
1: workmates all think he's going to race Qatar one from the messages I've got. But I can't see it. So, but what do I know? know? Uh
3: (laughs) It's telling telling that he's been riding at Portimao this week as well. Uh, You know, getting to know which way the track goes, which of course he couldn't do last season. So maybe yeah. that's uh, something else. Yeah, but he's,
2: he, he's ridden a two-round uh, bike around um, uh, around Portimao when he came back from his eye injury. Uh, that was one of the tracks where he did where he tested quite extensively. Um, but I think uh, uh, Chaz Davies was talking to Matt Oxley on Twitter about this and pointing out that like turn one at Portimao, and you must know this as well, Simon. <laughs> If you want to see how strong your um, upper body is, how strong your arms are and how strong your shoulder is and what kind of forces are, turn one at, uh, at, yeah, at, um, at, at Portimao is a decent place to test it.
1: But I would say um, that the main reason for going there, more than what you just mentioned or Chas mentioned, is to be more competitive there um, when he goes to race very shortly. I'd say that would be the main reason. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Adam, you uh, you didn't actually make your prediction whenever you gave out about everyone else. So who's going to win the World
3: Championship? <laughs> I'm standing by uh, my prediction from the Patreon show. Uh, you know, it's between Joanne and Jack. And uh, seeing as this is on... That's
2: two, na- that's, that's two names. That's not one name, uh, Adam. It's all very well complaining about us and they, then, uh, they, and
3: then uh, giving
2: us two they names. They both
3: start with the same letter. They both contain the same <laughs> amount of letters. There's marginal difference. So, uh, you know, and I think, you know, as we're only hours away from Qatar one, I think Jack's my tip for for victory there, you know, being uh, a Ducati's one, I think the last three years, I mean, it's not a wild uh, uh, estimation, but um, yeah, I think he's in, he's looking good. Yeah, one I thing do.
2: about the Qatar one thing about the Qatar race which I'm interested in because it it was always a close race because it was a slow race because Andrea Dovizioso slowed everyone up because that was his <laughs> that, that was the way that he won races the way that he ran races was getting everyone's way slow it up uh, manage the tire and have something left at the end of the race. Uh, uh, for a start, I don't know if Jack Miller can do that i don't not even sure it's his natural style um but it's going to be interesting to compare previous races to this year's race i think i think we're going to see a different uh, a different kind of a race at qatar this year
0: yeah there's always an art form to winning at the slowest possible speed and like you said david we saw that a lot with davi yeah um i i've already said before that for me all these predictions they're not really about what i think is going to happen they're about where i think the value is in betting on them and uh (laughs) I think So, bookies, Lorenzo Salvadori then? No, no. The bookies are going to have it wrong on Jack and the bookies could have it wrong on Mark. This could be the first time you ever actually get value for betting on Mark Marquez. <laughs> so, you know, get it in early and you could end up doing all right. They're the two that, for me, I think Jack starts the season. He's the one that I'd love to see him do it and I think it will be great. And uh, obviously, we had Jack on the podcast fairly recently, so give that a listen and uh, see what he has to say going forward. It's been a lot of fun, Simon, having you on the podcast. It's been great. Uh, thanks for giving us so much of your time.
1: My pleasure, guys. touring the fit with uh, people who know know the sport. Great fun.
0: Yeah, it certainly was for us as well. David, thanks for joining us as well. Obviously, we're straight into the season. This show's coming out just a couple of days before the start of free practice one. We've got a Moto two and a Moto three season preview coming out as well this week. It's busy times.
2: Yeah, it is busy times. Good, to, and a special uh, thank you for uh, to Simon for coming on the uh, uh, the podcast. He's been it's been fantastic. It's been an honor to watch him the way that he's transformed from a a racer into a journalist, that he put the same amount of effort and hard work and determination into doing it. And he's he's absolutely fantastic. And uh, uh, the check is in the post for all those nice things that he said about (laughs) me.
1: (laughs) Thank you, buddy.
2: Really appreciate it.
0: And uh, Adam, it's been great having you on the show as well. And obviously, uh, you'll be fairly busy now. We've got uh, Qatar 1 and then you've also got your magazine coming out pretty soon as well.
3: Yeah, deadline right between the races. So that's going to be a busy week. And uh, don't forget the Supercross is also won in its way to a conclusion as well, so that's pretty exciting. Let's see what uh, you know, either Ken Roxon or uh, Cooper Webb can can wrap up that title. So, there's, uh, it's great that the racing's starting. That's what I can say.
0: Yeah, it's been uh, a long winter, and uh, it's good that we're finally all back to work properly now as well with the start of the Grand Prix season. So, big thank you from myself, Steve English. Big thank you from David Emmett, Adam Wheeler, and Simon Crafar as well for joining us on this episode, looking ahead to the 2021 MotoGP season. So, until the next time on the Paddock Pass Podcast, presented by Fly Racing. Big thank you from all of us.
3: This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler, was edited by Brian Burnett.
2: Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team
1: at paddockpasspodcast.com I'll repeat, David, can you stop making so much sense, you know? Stop it.
3: <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll start spouting shite, is that alright? <laughs> Simon, don't stroke his ego anymore, please. Just don't he doesn't need it. Oh, I like it, it's
0: bang on Right, we'll start off again there, boys.